Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keen and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business app. Ed Yardeni joins us now, president of Yardeni Research. Ed, I didn't know whether to be offended or not by those comments. Great to catch up with you. You coined the phrase bond vigilantes. Ed, are the vigilantes back? I think they are. They're certainly saddling up. Um, Look, uh, usually the uh, bond market is driven by inflation, inflation expectations, and what everybody expects the Fed to do about inflation. Uh, Usually supply and demand really don't matter that much. uh, And that's usually because federal deficits uh, tend to widen during recessions when the Fed's lowering interest rates. This time around, we've got the federal deficit widening when the economy is doing well. And I think the bond vigilantes are quite concerned about that. Uh, Way too much supply. How much of this bond move is a threat, a headwind to your bullish equity call, Ed? Well, look, uh, I thought uh, we would uh, end up the year at 4,600 on the S&P 500. We got there at the end of July and I decided not to raise my forecast. Uh, So I'm looking for the market to either move sideways or continue with this uh, pullback, uh, maybe even down to the 200-day moving average and concerns about what the bond markets, uh, bond vigilantes are going to do. But then I think by year end, we'll still end up around 4,600. Next year, I'm looking for 5,400. But I think in the short term here, it's uh, it's why the market has been down for since really the end of July. Is a 4,600 level or even a 5,400 level next year realistic or consistent with bond yields that don't materially go down from where they are right Mm now? Well, welcome back to normal, right? Uh, We had, you know, abnormally low interest rates for a very long time. And uh, central banks around the world kept trying to pump more liquidity into the system to bring inflation all the way back up to 2%. Uh, now we're back to uh, where we were uh, before the 2007-2008 uh, calamity. Uh, we've we've seen real interest rates, the tips yield, the 10-year tips yield go back to 2% instead of going staying around zero or slightly negative. Uh, you know, 2% plus uh, 2.5% uh, in, inflation uh, premium is 4.5%. So that's uh, pretty close to, to where we where we are. And so far, the economy is demonstrating that normal is okay. I mean, even the housing market has uh, recovered despite the fact that uh, interest rates have gone up. Look, I remember uh, when I was younger, I, uh, I guess it was the, I forget when I was younger, uh, it was uh, 1980s, early 1980s, I paid 6% for a mortgage in Westchester. Um, so, um, 
you know, it's, it's all a matter of perspective, right? Well, but housing prices were a lot lower then, right? We hadn't they necessarily were. seen the inflation relative to income. Correct. We hadn't seen the inflation in assets that was spurred by low rate policies for so long. There mm-hmm. was a theory before we got here that it, rates going up to this level would decimate all these bubbles that had emerged during yeah. that era. Are you saying that that's not true? That people have basically refinanced and managed their uh, balance sheets well enough to avoid that? Yes, Kelly. Uh, just empirically, it's pretty clear that uh, all this talk about uh, a recession so far hasn't panned out. I mean, we still have that kind of risk, I suppose. Uh, but really, the way it's uh, unfolded is uh, in a, a, as a rolling recession. It hit housing, and then it hit goods. Now it's going to hit commercial real estate. Uh, but now I think, uh, given what retail sales did in July, uh, the goods recession may, may be maybe over, and uh, the housing. Uh, Recession may be bottoming. Can I just put it on the record that if a boomer wants to sell me their home for $50,000, I'm happy to pay 15% on a loan for that. <laughs> okay, it's on the record. If, yeah, if, but if back, I, back then, that was a lot of money for a house. If anyone's out there, Ed, but what was the multiple of the average salary, Ed, compared to what it is now? Ed, it's ridiculous yeah, now. Yeah, look, yeah. Look, th- these are different times, but uh, on the other hand, I think the real abnormality uh, was uh, the, the period since 2008 uh, through. Uh, the, the uh, pandemic and until really uh, 2022 when the Fed had to start raising interest rates. But look, I, I think inflation's uh, coming down. I think um, you were talking about Powell. Um, I think Powell's going to talk hawkish, but when you really listen to the message, I think he's going to agree with uh, John Williams, the uh, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and say, you know what, uh, we, we, have, we are making progress on inflation. And if we continue to do that, we're going to have to lower interest rates next year. Oh, you think he'll entertain that conversation, Ed? Just the idea that you don't want real rates to get more restrictive. Yes. You want to keep them consistent. I do. I think John Williams is very influential uh, at the Fed. And I think uh, he and uh, Powell tends to uh, talk to each other quite a bit. And uh, Williams tends to be sort of the theoretician. And uh, Powell is the pragmatist that Im- implements policy. Uh, I, I, I look, they can't really afford to see this bond yield keep going up. Uh, so they've got to calm the bond market down. And I think they're going to have to concede or acknowledge that inflation has come down. Look, the, the CPI excluding shelter is up only 2% on a year over year basis in July. The CPI core excluding shelter is up 2.5%. We're under 2%. All we have to do is wait for shelter inflation to come down, and we know it's coming down. But, Ed, where is the neutral rate then once we get to that 2%? And how high yeah. can it be to still allow the stock market rally yeah. that you're predicting? I have to tell you, you know, I wrote a book uh, on my experiences for 40 years back in 2018. And one of the conclusions I came to is I don't really understand the neutral rate, the real rate. It's a, a theoretical construct. Nobody, uh, It's some, not something you can observe. Uh, I'm I'm sort of an empiricist. Uh, I do follow the data. I'm I'm data dependent, like the Fed. And I think what it demonstrates is that the real rate is higher in the sense that the economy has uh, been able to withstand the, these kind of levels of interest rates, which we really haven't seen in uh, over a decade. Right now, we're all bond market dependent, aren't we? Ed, thank you, Correct. sir. Always good fun, thank Ed. You. Ed Yardeni, who, of course, decades ago coined that phrase, bond vigilantes. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. 
Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Cassie Barrow joins us now, Fixed Income Portfolio Manager over at JP Morgan Asset Management. Cassie, good morning. Good morning. We're not going to talk about the housing market, don't worry. We're going to talk about your bond market call. Mm -hmm. We know you've been pretty bullish on fixed income. We've caught up with Bob and yourself a few times over the last few months. We were looking for 3% right the way through the curve. This bond market's moved against you. Is this a buy now and why is it a buy? Yeah. So the market has moved higher over the, the course of the month. Uh, it feels like bond buyers has essentially gone off to vacation. Um, but we do view this as a buy. And the list of items that the consumer is going to need to deal with when they get back from their holidays and they look at their bills, I mean, the list is really growing. So for instance, we're coming back to the fall. Student loan payments are restarting. Mortgage rates, as you just mentioned, are at their highest level since 2001. One, you have people uh, in California, Alabama, and Georgia who deferred their taxes who now need to make due on that. Credit card balances are also rising. With that, interest expenses on that are rising as well. So when I look at things like the retail sales report, which is an inherently very volatile number, what I see is a pull forward of consumption, a lot of fun this summer. And we're we're getting to the point where some of that fun has has run out. In fact, you know, we talk about the Taylor Swift tour, the Eras tour. She's going abroad. You know, the U.S. economy is going to have to make it on their own. <laughs> Right. right. Okay. All right. So putting Taylor Swift in the Swift uh, or tailwind to the U.S. economy aside, how much conviction do you have about what's behind the move that we have seen other than just everyone's on vacation? Yeah. So we've been looking back at the end of prior rate hiking cycles. So 2000, 2006, 1995. What we found in that all of those scenarios when the Fed stops, Everybody thinks that we've engineered a soft landing. If you go back and you look back at 2000, 2001, 2006, 2007, we were talking about the exact same things. Soft landing, we weren't sure if policy was tight enough. It looked like the Fed had done it, okay? So now we're trying to assess is this another soft landing or is this potentially a false signal? Um, and then there's a couple things that we're seeing now that uh, indicate to us that, you know, things may get a little bit more tricky. 
as we move into the balance of the year. Uh, things that didn't happen in the 1995 cycle, for example, and that's, I use 1995 because that's the benchmark, right? Everyone uses that as the example, of the perfect example of a soft landing. Well, in 1995, the three-month 10-year yield curve, it never inverted. In 1995, credit, credit, credit uh, in the H8 data from the commercial banks that you look at on Friday at 4.15, yep. <laughs> never contracted, right? It, right now it's in contraction already. Right. Um, all of these things are suggesting to us that policy is actually restrictive. We need to give it time. In fact, policy really has only been tight for a few quarters. So how aggressively are you buying right now? I think this this is absolutely a time to be buying fixed income. Uh, so have you increased your purchases recently? Have you been aggressively increasing? We have been using a dial across the whole year, right? We've had a view that the Fed would get to around 5%. They would be able to pause. And over that time, we want to be increasing our allocation to fixed income for the diversification and for the income. That's what we've been doing. We continue to to do that as we see new new highs in yields. And, and, and it's new highs, but I would also point out the fact that 433 was the intraday high for 10s, 442 was the intraday high for 30s. We've been able to, to hold off on those levels. We've been able to back off those levels. So fairly encouraging there. Let's go back to last October. What's different about that sell-off and what's happening here? Last October. Last October, when we hit those levels that yeah. you just described on a 10-year. What's different about this moment? The yeah. dynamics behind the move now compared to back then? Well, I think the most striking thing is that the terminal rate pricing has essentially remained unchanged, right? So it's been static around 5.4%. So really no movement there. The market is very comfortable with the terminal rate. I think if we were really... If we really believed that these policy rates were not making an impact on the economy and that no one was bothered by 7% mortgage rates, then the market should be pricing a lot higher of a terminal rate. And it's not. Also, if the market truly believed that policy wasn't restrictive, inflation break-even should be taking off right now. They're not. So that's the difference. In October of last year, they hadn't done enough yet. Uh, it, it was still clear we hadn't done enough. I think we're in a, in a different place now. It's a massive difference. And I would say a key dynamic we haven't discussed yet is the supply story. That wasn't discussed in October. It is being discussed now. Does that change the way we should think about fixed income and Treasury specifically at the longer end of the curve? Yeah, so there there is more supply. Normally, demand comes in to match supply. I think we are still seeing that, right? Um, it may be at a, a slightly incrementally higher yield to, to meet that demand, but we, we are still seeing that. You know, one of the things that I've been looking at, two things I've been keeping my eye on to see if there's some dislocation in the cash markets. One is swap spreads. So how are cash bonds, cash treasury bonds, uh, trading to the, to the swap market? Um, and then the other thing is primary dealer holdings. If there was a really big issue taking down this supply, if people weren't interested, we would see those primary dealer holdings really start to ramp up. We've actually seen fairly good takedown at the auctions. Um, indirect buying has continued to increase. So there there are people, stronger hands, that are, are taking the, the yields at these levels. Just real quickly, uh, given the fact that spreads on high yield have remained incredibly tight, how rich do you think that is? I would be very cautious um, with spreads in high yields in the low 400s here. Uh, this is a pricing that is 
perfectly priced for the soft landing. And when you look at the upside downside, how much tighter can you go versus how much wider can you go on spreads? I mean, to me, that that asymmetry is very, very obvious. It's obvious in high yield. I think it's obvious in, in the pricing of the economy. And I think it's also obvious in bond markets. How much higher can you go? Maybe a little bit. How much lower can we go when the Fed starts cutting? A lot. Basically near the tights of the year. Which is phenomenal. It is phenomenal. It's, it's really phenomenal. For everyone that's talking about this breakdown in the equity market, I can go through the levels for you just briefly on the S&P 500. We're down 5% from the intraday highs in July. The Nasdaq 100 down something like 8% from the intraday highs in July. Given the move we've seen in the bond market, if I just said, there's your bond market move, guess what's happened to stocks? I think you'd go beyond 5%. If I said, guess what's happened to high yield? I'm not sure you'd guess we're near the tights of the year. Everyone would probably say this points to a market that's shrugging off and saying, Eddie Ardenny is right, and this is the new normal, and it's just fine. Kelsey, good to see you. Thanks for the update. Thank you. Kelsey Barrow there of JP Morgan. Well, Sheila Kayalu, Senior Equity Research Analyst at Jefferies, joins to actually answer the question that we keep speculating on with absolutely uneducated impressions of the tickets being really uh, pricey. Are ticket prices going down as much as the U.S. CPI report seems to suggest? Yeah, the U.S. CPI report seems to suggest ticket prices are going down, but um, that is only through not necessarily encompassing all the uh, venues that folks could buy tickets through. But, you know, over the long term, as we actually look at ticket prices, they actually have not been increasing. So it's still great value, even though it's no longer $400 to get from the East Coast to the West Coast, and it might be $700. And that seems like a big increase. There's no other way to simply do it. So yes, um, ticket prices have not really been increasing over the long term as much as people expect. And when we look at the industry overall, um, you know, we're expecting ticket prices to be about 15% above 2019 levels in 2023, and basically flattish uh, year over year in 2024, so not much of an increase. And what we're seeing in the airline market right now is a dichotomy between domestic fares and international fares, where domestic fares are actually seeing declines and sequential declines as we head into Q3, just given demand softness there. And we could talk more about that. Uh, but international continues to be up robustly, 25% or so uh, versus 2019 levels. So much more strength than international travel and fares uh, is what we're seeing. Bear with me for a second. I want to get a little granular because domestic fares might be coming down in general and international fares may not be. There is an issue about where domestically. Is this a question of vacationers seeing prices go up significantly and business travel, which hasn't come back to the same degree, not necessarily seeing that same kind of pressure? So some of the sort of mid-tier cities that aren't as much vacation destinations are the ones where prices are going down. Yeah, we're, it's really interesting because I think a lot of the uncertainty is out of, um, you know, the macroeconomic factors. I think we could all agree it's pretty much a soft landing and not a hard landing. So why are we seeing this yield softness in domestic markets? Or is it just specific markets that are seeing it because corporate's stagnating at 85%? So maybe post-pandemic, there's different features that are going on in different cities. So you know, somebody in Ohio might not be necessarily commuting back to Chicago in January. Southwest cited that as an example of a route that's no longer fulfilled as much as one would expect. So that's on the corporate demand stagnating and also changing travel trends. And what we're seeing in the U.S. market as well is there's domestic capacity tightness right now. 
but we're expecting domestic capacity to increase at a 7% rate from 2022 to 2025. So think 4,400 aircraft going to about 5,000 plus over the next three years, and that's double the rate of air traffic. So what's flooding the market with capacity right now is also the low-cost carriers like Frontier and Spirit. And so that might be causing the pricing softness as well as everybody adds to these same domestic routes instead of creating new markets. If prices go down, does that mean that the experience gets even worse? Um, Not necessarily, but obviously, you know, what we're seeing is also an increase in um, the cost side of the equation, whether that's uh, jet fuel is up significantly since May. And obviously, labor agreements are calling for 30 percent salary increases or so. So, yes. Uh, one would infer that if prices are going down, your revenues are going down and your costs are going up, your margins are getting squeezed as an airline and the customer experience might be impacted by that. Which raises this question, Sheila, and it's something that I've been asking myself, at what point is it not worth flying anymore or is it worth sort of readjusting vacations to try to drive places or uh, have some sort of alternative? Are you seeing any kind of exhaustion after two years of YOLO and two years of pandemic revenge spending and revenge traveling? Is there any exhaustion to shift away from this boom that we've seen in the airline industry that has driven so much of the gains across the board? Um, not, not necessarily. I mean, we're still bullish on the certain airlines such as Delta, where they have a premium offering, an international focus, and that premium offering is really holding on to, you know, that pricing, ex- that experience. People are paying up for that. Um, so, and they're also expanding with their Sky Miles program and their American Express credit card. So it's, they're providing a little bit more of a lifestyle expanding beyond just being an, an airline. So not necessarily. So can we just lean into that American Express thing? We also, that's another hot debate on surveillance about whether the lounge is uh, increasingly becoming a perk for credit card owners and less uh, about people who actually fly around on the planes. Is that basically where this is going? And how lucrative actually is this at a time where people are crowding into the lounge and trying to eat as much as they can and drink as much as they can before they get on the planes? Um, well, if you think about it, the airline industry, they trade at about a 60% discount to the market. So about five to six times EBITDA. And if you think about credit cards uh, like Visa and Amex, they trade at double to triple that multiple. So what we've seen with airlines is uh, a focus on loyalty programs, a focus on that experience as well. But obviously, you know, Delta does not disclose what percentage of its Free cash flow is generated from its Sky Miles program, but we assume it's uh, it's pretty hefty, and um, you know that that helps the company's valuation. So I think that's where the focus is is just the multiple equation, and obviously the loyalty factor as folks keep coming back to a certain airline um, because of the points and you know continuing to accumulate those. You talk about Delta. We also have talked about United and, 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 um, and American era as far as the gains that we've seen so far, particularly with the international travel and the resurgence there. You mentioned Frontier and some of the other discounters. Are they going to see their time in the sun? Are they going to start to reassert their muscle now after lagging behind for a while? Uh, we don't think so. We actually just downgraded um, Southwest Airlines to an underperform rating. Uh, specifically for this carrier, we think that they're going to be pressured in the middle. They're not part of the network carriers and they're not necessarily part of the low cost carriers. 
So they're going to see pressure. Um, and that's why the company announced a $500 million plan to uh, 500 million of it planned improvements in their earnings outlook um, with their network optimization plan that they're starting uh, now, but won't be really fulfilled till Q2 2024. And they're going to restructure some of those routes to better fulfill where they're seeing demand. So for now, um, we are quite negative on the lower cost carriers, given um, we, we don't think that they're going to see a pricing improvement and they're going to continue to see yield softness, particularly as U.S. domestic capacity increases over the next two years. With When it comes to the major uh, airlines, how much of the gains that you expect are going to be driven from business versus uh, consumers and just people who are vacationing? We're, our, our assumption is really for total air traffic to grow 4% over the next three years. That's global air traffic. And when you think about global air traffic, it grew about five and a half, six percent 6% over the last two decades. So we have taken a point off for China being slower to recover. And we have taken a point off for um, Zoom replacing some in-person meetings. So we've already factored that corporate kind of stagnates at this 85% level, 85, 90% of 2019 levels. And I'm kind of surprised at that. Actually, I thought it would be better. My travel schedule is certainly more robust than it was in 2019, but um, you know, clearly not for everybody else. So really the factor here is how airlines do um, with leisure and that, you know, there's a hybrid leisure um, and business travel factor and more focus on how they do internationally in the Atlantic markets and Pacific markets as those Asia Pacific markets as those reopen, given what you're seeing in U.S. domestic um, leisure and Latin American leisure is basically already above 100 percent. Sheila Kayalu, thank you so much for being with us and uh, for joining and giving us a sense of what we can expect in the airline industry. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Steve Pagliuca, the senior advisor at Bank Capital and co-chairman of Atalanta, an Italian football club. 
who kicks off their season later on this weekend against Aswalo on Sunday. Steve, wonderful to catch up with you. We just wanted to start with Saudi's influence on the game. You're in the transfer window, the transfer market. You're trying to acquire talent. Just how distorted is this transfer market now, Steve, in Europe? Well, it's been pretty extraordinary, John. Uh, actually, we just had a meeting with some of the Saudi folks. One of our one of our players has been purchased uh, by by the Saudis this morning, and um, it's uh, it's been it's been extraordinary kind of injection of capital um, and increased the price of players dramatically. Steve, has it upset the salary structure at clubs like your own? Have you noticed that? Have you had players come to you demanding larger sums of money? You know, it really hasn't upset because we've been dealing with the, the top five leagues pay pretty well. Um, and uh, the Premier League uh, probably pays the best. And so we've been dealing with that. So the Saudis are no, no different. But I think the Saudis maybe will disrupt the Premier League because it looks like players are getting paid, you know, three times, at least three times what they made either in the Premier League or, or either in, in, uh, in Italy, maybe four times. So we'll see how long that's sustainable. But for now, it's certainly injected a lot of capital into football. And, uh, and football truly is becoming a global sport, and that's why they're focusing on it. Steve, how does it shape the, your investment prospects at a football club like Atalanta? When you take a stake in, let's say, a mid-sized Italian team hoping for much bigger things, does it make things less sustainable in football when you're competing against a price-insensitive player like Saudi Arabia? Well, the good news is is, is uh, each team has 11 players, so there's plenty of great players out there. But you just have to be smart and you really have to have a great development capability, and that's what we have here at, at Atalanta. Um, several, so we've developed uh, hundreds of players for our own team and other teams. So it's going to really put the emphasis on development and also being disciplined and making smart purchases and not not uh, paying inflated prices for, for mediocre players. So um, I, I, I think it's no different than the Premier League. Premier League. The issue in the Premier League is you have a couple of clubs directly controlled by sovereigns and obviously they have lots and lots of capital so it makes it difficult for the 16 clubs to compete there. There is a question also about what the new economic model is if you're investing in some of these clubs. We've seen at least a couple clubs seem to go into second or third tier and then look to broaden the commercial appeal, the content on a broader level, not just the games, but also Netflix series and other ways of popularizing it. Is that a way to kind of key in and give an economic upside to potential players in a way that just paying them off doesn't cut? You have to look at all mechanisms uh, to, 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 to help the players. And, and certainly in European football, uh, you need to have the most attractive team, the most attractive uh, situation and attractive sponsorships. And so that's what we're trying to do here at Atalanta. And obviously win. Uh, we're in the Europa League. We're trying to get to the Champions League. And so it's a big boom for us to be in the Europa League and play the best clubs. So each team has to have that kind of strategy and have to be creative with, uh, with the money that's out there. And it's not without risk. You've seen many teams relegated. There's this... As opposed to the U.S., you have a relegation model where if you don't spend thoughtfully and you, and you don't perform, you know, you get down to the next level and then you're in real trouble financially. So um, there's high upside and there's high downside in this in this game. Although that said, Lionel Messi, watching him down in Florida, he looks like he's on a joyride. Uh, you know, John's pointed this out, that basically he's just going through the field, kicking goals in and left and right uh, and dominating in every which way. People are still signing up. People are still watching. Is all you need one good player, one good drama, one good something to hook in viewers beyond just an incredible competition? 
Well, you know, Messi is uh, one of the best two or three players in the entire world, so it's great that Miami's landed him. And I think he turned down $200 million a year, something on the order of that, to play in Saudi, so that's incredible. Uh, so I think Apple has done a great job, and the league's done a great job bringing him in to, to, to continue to, to grow soccer in the U.S., and I hope it continues to grow because uh, it's a world game and it's going to benefit everybody. New York Red Bulls. In the next couple of weeks, you send a price to those tickets. No, I mean, it's the messy Have you seen the price of those tickets? I have not seen them price. If you want to sit, let's say halfway line, great tickets, typically at a stadium like that, like to watch a team like that, <laughs> maybe you'd pay like somewhere up to 100 bucks, maybe. Yeah, yeah. $1,000. Mm. $1,000 to go and watch yeah, Messi. It's a rock star. In New York. Just ridiculous. Steve, can we define success for this season and not just for Atalanta? I think there's a lot of people watching that want your view on a Celtics as well. What does success look like for your teams this year? Well, we're, we're, we're contending for a championship um, in, in Boston. It's about championships, and, and we try to construct the team so we can win. I'm very, I'm very optimistic this season. We have a great group of players coming in. Uh, Porzingis is going to add a lot up front. Uh, that, that was a fantastic job. Brad Stevens with Grossbeck and the team did getting him to come to Boston. He had several opportunities, and, and we were able to pull off a trade. So uh, we're very excited about this season. Our fans are excited, and I, I can't wait for it to start. From a financial perspective, going forward, do you expect the same amount of interest in buying sports teams across the world if we do have a new interest rate structure, if we do have suddenly a higher cost of money? Definitely a higher cost of money is going to impact that. Um, and team values are already very high. So it, it is hard for you know, you know, teams to grow 10 times or 20 times off, off the high basis they're at. And the high interest rates are affecting everything. Now, that being said, uh, for for at least two thirds of my lifetime, you know, T bills have been at five percent. We've only had this anomalous period uh, since the crisis in 2008, where they went down to one percent and a half percent. So there's no more free money, and that will definitely impact what people can do. But other factors like like the Saudi oil and and the huge um, expansion of sports in terms of streaming and be able to get any sports team at any time that you want with today's technology. It's really globalized sports, and so I see the values continuing to increase because you're having people tune in from China to see Messi in Miami, and, and you couldn't do that uh, 20 or 30 years ago. I lived in Holland in the in the late uh, 70s, and uh, the best I could get was the International Herald Tribune. Three days later, would give me the sports results from the U.S. <laughs> World Series, uh, or I'd have to I'd have to, I'd have to pay twenty dollars a minute to to call someone in the U.S. to find out who won a game. So that's a huge, uh, you know, advance in my lifetime where now you can get out your phone and, and be on the subway in China and watch the Celtics play the Lakers. That's incredible. Unreal. Steve, Atlanta, Atalanta, Milan, December 10th. Let's make that happen. Your club against, against my club. We're going to go watch that together. December 10th, Atalanta, AC Milan. Yeah, that, that, that's going to be a big one for us. Uh, uh, it, it has a lot of subplots to it as well with the, with the trading and things we've done with them and their, their arrival that's 45 minutes away from here. So that's always a huge game. So let, let's definitely do that. I'll, I'll, I'll book it down. We'll make that happen. Steve, congratulations for all your success. Good luck at the weekend. We appreciate your time this morning. Steve Paliuka there of Bain, of course, and Atalanta, Boston Celtics. Right. Take your pick, Bremo. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.
You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.